Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining us for the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. It's Wednesday, February 2nd, 2022, and these are the three questions we're going to be answering in depth today on the Roundup. First up, what is the state of social media globally in 2022? Next, are you telling your college's COVID success stories? And finally, how are STEM OPT majors driving innovation? We'll take a look at these three questions and more on today's SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. So let's get right into it. As we do each week, we take our three questions that we go in depth on the Roundup from our newsletter that comes out Monday morning called All the SMIE News Fit to Share. And that can be found at our website, the archive of our most recent editions at smieconsulting.org slash subscribe. Hit the subscribe button, add your name and email address to the mailing list, and you'll get the newsletter in your inbox every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern. And from there, you can try and figure out what three questions we're going to cover each Wednesday on the Roundup. So I put the, the links to the stories that I cover for each of the answers to these questions in the comments section on the Facebook page uh, for the live event for this chat on um, one, at 1 p.m. Eastern time every Wednesday. So that's where you can go to find the direct links. If not, refer back to the newsletter to get all the links to all these stories that we're covering today. Now let's get right into that first story. What is the state of social media globally in 2022? Uh, for many of you who know me uh, over the last uh, decade or more, uh, you know that it's almost 17 years now I've been doing social media for work. Uh, in terms of uh, my life on the, on the university side, when I was with Education USA, getting all their global social channels set up back in 2009, to uh, working and consulting with institutions as they develop their own social media presence and content and strategies around that. So social media is, it's part of our company name, Social Media and International Ed Consulting. And I always, every once in a while, will cover a broad overview of social media to really examine how big of a change uh, each quarter, each year, uh, social media is having on the world. And it's, it's really interesting to take a deep dive into these. And the two sources I'll be sh sharing content with uh, for this question, the answer to this question, are Hootsuite and We Are Social. They actually team up together for an annual or actually quarterly reports now. And there's some great snapshot data that I'm going to be sharing with you uh, that answers this question. Now, the world's population is anywhere from uh, 7.5 to 7.9 million billion people, excuse me. Uh, now, of the world's population, right now, 4.62 billion people are on social media. And that's an increase uh, year on year of, I think it's a, uh, uh, every quarter, that's a two point, almost two, perc two percentage point increase uh, in the last quarter. But over the last year, it's over a 10% increase in the world's population that's currently using social media at least monthly. So the average time that every user spends on social media daily is up to two hours and 27 minutes. So that shows you the power of social media in terms of occupying screen time for uh, people around the world. 
I get a weekly report on my iPhone that tells me across my devices, at least my phone and my iPad, what, how much time I spend each week on social media. It tells me how much I'm up, how much I'm down. It's about six and a half hours a day on average that I'm on a, a phone or tablet, uh, money more on a, on a computer screen as I uh, do my work. But certainly the impact of social on what we do certainly uh, has risen dramatically. So some of the SuiteSuite data and we are social data will be very helpful, I think, in terms of giving you that perspective and certainly something that you can share widely uh, with uh, your uh, with your with your colleagues, certainly with your leadership, if you're trying to justify why you need to have a better presence on social media than you do. And I know many institutions, uh, if you're lucky enough to have access to social media, it might be just the uh, university-wide accounts. It might be just a college account. It might be an admissions account if you're lucky, uh, but rarely is it going to be an international admissions-specific one uh, to have the kind of directed content for students in your target markets. Now, what are the biggest platforms in the world? Uh, no surprise uh, that the top five uh Three, are, three of which are messaging apps. Uh, Facebook is number one. It's still at 2.5, uh, actually 2. Point, closing in on 2. Point, uh, closing in on 3 billion people. So 2.9 billion people are currently on Facebook around the world. So you think it's dead in America? Maybe for your teenagers are, it is. But when, you, when it comes to the rest of the world, they're still catching up. And, and with wherever you've seen Facebook take off in certain countries, it's been with the youth. Uh, the under 18 demographic first. So Facebook certainly continues to boom. YouTube is at two and a half billion users. WhatsApp and Instagram are next at 2 billion and 1.5 billion roughly for Instagram. WhatsApp is the third most used social platform in the world. After uh, Instagram, we get WeChat. Uh, the Chinese uh, juggernaut uh, that is used uh, very much in, in China as the premier uh, all-in-one social media platform, but uh, it's also being used outside the outside of China by the Chinese diaspora uh, and also those that are looking to invest in China, uh, U.S. businesses, uh, U.S. Uh, individuals that have connections in China. WeChat is is the dominant platform there. TikTok is coming in and it's closing in fast on a billion users. Uh, that is uh, the, the biggest jump uh, in any messaging platform, certainly any social media platform in the last year. TikTok has seen the most substantial growth, growth in terms of audience, growth in terms of ad revenue, uh, growth in terms of overall uh, impact on particularly the younger audiences. That may be very much what our, your colleges and universities are looking after. So uh, after that, Facebook Messenger is, uh, has just been surpassed by TikTok. Uh, then it's Doya, Doi, excuse me, it's uh, some some uh, Chinese platforms, Doiben, uh, QQ, and Sinoweibo, and some others down the down the road. Uh, and Telegram has uh, closing has crossed 550 million. Uh, Pinterest is uh, at 440 million. Twitter is below Pinterest at 434. So we see. These social platforms are just taking off, uh, and it's social. And when it comes to social media, Facebook is still uh, the juggernaut uh, out there, and that's it has about 350 million more active users than the next closest competitor, YouTube. So uh, your audience is on Facebook. Uh, at least 79% of users on 10 of the worst on the world's social platforms are also on Facebook. So, uh, so that's. Uh, 
that really tells you a lot. Um, and whether it's Facebook or the metaverse now, uh, Meta, the company that owns now Facebook, uh, also owns Instagram, also owns uh, WhatsApp. Uh, and that's, uh, that, that universe of metaverse, as they're going to call it, is uh, continuing to expand its impact on the world. So that's, uh, that tells you a lot about uh, the, the overall growth of those numbers. Uh, what, where there is overlap, Facebook is the most common denominator outside of China that everybody will be on. Uh, the other side of the, of, the, of the social media impact that I want to spend some time on is ad revenue or ad spend, I should say. Uh, that what digital social in particular has become, it's now a third of all digital advertising is done on social media platforms. Uh, the reach, and when, when people talk about audience now, they talk about the reach of, the, of potential messaging. YouTube is now 2.56 billion. Uh, that has um, uh, certainly seen a lot of growth. Face, uh, Instagram has, has also had similar growth, but TikTok has just been going nuts with, uh, in the growth of their audience and in terms of the ad spend that's currently uh, directed toward social media platforms for companies to reach their targeted populations. So we look at uh, the global uh, social media users. We talked about 4.62 billion people on the planet, uh, well over half, closing in on actually 60%, almost two thirds of the world's population are using social media now, 58.4%. Uh, so that is something that you certainly wanna pay attention to. It's not going away anytime soon. It's grown 10% in the last, last 12 months. What uh, you look at what's happening in the world uh, when it comes to how people are consuming media, uh, what sources, the amount of face time uh, they spend with screen time that they spend each day. Uh, the growth is just, uh, just incredible in terms of what's coming, uh, what the potential is. And you've seen from over the last 10 years, uh, you've seen the number of social media users on the planet grow from 1.4 billion in January of 2012 to now 4.6 billion. That's an, an increase of over 3 billion in just the last 10 years are now social media users. And those that, that when they start, they start in their, in their teen years. And that's when uh, they, they uh, you, can, you can first get in front of those audiences that can potentially be your future students. So some great data in the We Are Social and Hootsuite articles this week. Hope you get a chance to check those out. Now, let's move quickly into the second question. Are you telling your college's COVID success stories? This is a question that it seems like we've been in, we have been in this uh, in this pandemic for 2 years now. We've had 2 years of students struggling to deal with uh, the changing educational delivery systems that we've we've tried uh, and failed with and try and and adjusted and succeeded with. We've uh, had two years of students being isolated on campus uh, for those that couldn't go home to those that were forced to leave. We've had two years of institutions stepping up and providing for those students to meeting their needs, to being where they are and showing their true heart as an institution. These success stories, why are they important? When you're thinking about uh, what all the student surveys we've heard over the last two years about student perceptions of the United States and perceptions and realities are oftentimes different, but until that student sees something different, 
that's their reality is whatever they're perceiving. And they're perceiving based on news stories. They're perceiving based on uh, the number of deaths the U U.S. has had, the number of cases that, uh, that are happening in the United States. We're a big country. We, we, we share, we share, but we share our information openly. We don't know what's happening in China. There are cities still in lockdown because of Omicron uh, uh, rushes there. Their, their policy of trying to have zero COVID cases is largely failed, but you don't hear much about that outside of China uh, because they have a tight control over what goes on in that country. Whereas in the United States, anybody and their brother with a phone can publish something and show something uh, from an ER, from an interview with a doctor or a nurse that then becomes viral and then paints a very uh, potentially damning picture of the United States if it's taken, in, taken as representative of the whole. Now, we all know that social media isn't always authentic, uh, even though it can and should be. It isn't always, and it's used for nefarious purposes sometimes. So what? why I'm saying this uh, in terms of perception, we have to battle the perception that the U.S. is not safe, particularly on our campuses for students. Any, any, any of my colleagues, and I know there's dozens of you out there that work at smaller colleges that had actually remained open uh, from fall of 20 all the way through to today. They've remained open because they're a smaller campus, they can control their environment uh, much better than perhaps a large public institution can, and they've been successful. They've implemented strategies, um, health, health, uh, health and safety mitigation strategies in, in public buildings with mandatory masking policies, which are, are, are very much uh, standard in a lot of colleges these days, even uh, with declining uh, Omicron cases. We've seen uh, social distancing maintained. We've seen large lecture halls kind of go away that have uh, turned into online classes and that are supplemented by smaller discussion or lab sections. We've seen those changes happening. We've seen uh, colleges step up when uh, in the residence hall environments, when uh, for quarantine purposes, particular residence halls were designated uh, as quarantine facilities. We've seen the evolution and kind of the moving target that the CDC has put for uh, quarantine times and uh, how, how people should isolate and when they can resume full, full, full activity. All of these things, it's been a moving target, but universities have had to adjust on, a, on the fly oftentimes when these new guidelines come out. There have been uh, vaccine mandates that have been imposed uh, and uh, on college campuses more successfully on private colleges than public colleges when there might be political battles going on. Uh, that sometimes those political battles can lead to, lead to vaccine mandates being overturned. But the point of the matter is, no matter what's going on in the world around us, universities can count uh, and have largely been able to count on being able to provide for their students and, and trying to do what's best. Not every, every institution has succeeded in this 100%, but the institutions really have, they have obviously have a vested interest in students' safety and health and maintaining that, and they've done what they can to ensure that, that they've uh, had testing, they go to the extent of testing uh, sewage coming out of residence halls to see if there are spikes in some of the COVID variables uh, that might might indicate that there's, a, that there's an outbreak in a, in a particular residence hall. And that leads to quarantining and testing and directed action that can help prevent a spread. 
Uh, we've seen vaccinations rollouts he heavily on campus since last last spring. So we're coming up on a year when t since students began to be able to have access to the vaccine. And that's certainly something that colleges have seen and can now point to as a real selling point that we've gotten 90% of our college of our students uh, vaccinated, 95, 97% of our staff are vaccinated. And as a result, that provides a level of comfort for prospective students, prospective parents who might be sending their sons and daughters to you to know that, hey, these guys have it together. They're addressing the problems that, that are out there and they're providing uh, a level of service and, and, and uh, security that I, as a parent, would feel comfortable, that myself as a student, if I'm attending a school, would feel comfortable knowing that that school has a fairly good idea what, what they're doing. Now, this question is, are you telling your colleges COVID success stories? The most important stories you need to be capturing are not exactly all those health and safety protocols that I've been talking about, but your current students, your current international students who have lived through this pandemic for two years, their experiences, whether they uh, they decided to go home, how you your campus has adapted uh, in terms of the online teaching uh, that has been available for them to proceed with their courses in a timely manner, how for those that were uh, who stayed in the United States but couldn't stay on campus for whatever reason, what your college did to help that group feel included. And most importantly, those that did stay on campus when everybody left, what did your campus do? Let those students who you can hopefully identify, and 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 the, particularly those of you in, uh, that work in international student and scholar offices that have more regular contact with these individuals and perhaps the recruiters would have, get, in, get to those students and say, hey, do you have anything positive you can say about uh, how the university or how your college handled uh, COVID, particularly in the worst of it, uh, or how you're handling it now? Just to t have that contemporaneous story that's current, that is impactful, that is on point for the kinds of concerns that students and parents have about the United States right now. As I said from the top of this question, it's countering perceptions or informing perceptions that students have with your reality so that they can get a sense, a true uh, first-person view from that student of what their life is like on your college campus right now. You want to do that anyway. We've always talked from the beginning that having your current students involved in your recruitment efforts uh, to tell their stories as part of uh, your overall uh, recruitment strategies is absolutely essential if you want to grow if you want to have direct impact and immediate impact on your prospective student audiences. So the same thing goes here with the COVID stories. If you've been successful in, in providing a level of service for your students and they are appreciative of that, this is something that you want to capture. This is something that you want to include on your social media, that you want to include a video clip of them uh, in emails that you send out related to health and safety on campus. That might, that can and should be part of your communication flow to prospective students this year. Too many institutions I deal with, they only have process emails that they send out. They think that's the only thing that their emails are good for. It's not about promotion for them. It's not a marketing tool. It's just seen as this is what you need to do to apply. This is what you need to do to complete your application. This is what you need to do now that you're admitted. This is what you need to do now that you've got your I-20. Here's what you need to do before you come to campus. Those messages are fine and they have to exist in a communication flow. But if that's all you're doing, if you're not including the highlights, the, mes the marketing messages for your institution, the value proposition, 
propositions for your institution, these success stories for your institution, you are missing the boat. Uh, this boat is, is taking on water because you haven't plugged the holes that are the perception the world has of the United States right now, of your institution potentially. They don't know what they don't know. So you have to tell them. They can understand an application process. They can understand what they need to submit. But unless you're explaining the value of your institution, that's not just words on a page or on a website, but it's in action from the students that you have on campus that can tell that story about um, why your campus has uh, such a great commitment to service, why your campus is, uh, is an is a engaging place for students from around the world, why your campus takes care of students during global pandemics, and how you've done that. Making those stories a part of your communication flow. And I'm talking not just in email. It needs to be on social media. It needs to be in messaging campaigns that you do beyond email to prospective students. Having video content that you can drop into an email or have uh, repurposed on multiple so social platforms is important. It is, in fact, a distinguishing factor if you can do that successfully this year. It should have been a distinguishing factor last year as well. But are you doing that as a regular part of your communication? This is something that I'm working with several clients now on developing these kinds of messaging, uh, messaging pieces, uh, whether it's quotes, whether it's short video clips, whether it's students sending an email as part of your comp flow to be available for students to find out, hey, would you like to have a chat about how we're doing with uh, COVID on campus? Those things matter. They can look at a COVID dashboard to get data, but they need personal stories too. Uh, that matters. So my uh, article that I wrote, it's a second in a series of uh, articles I'm doing for IDP Connect called Content Priorities Revisited. Uh, we did one earlier uh, in the year, earlier last fall, about outcomes and how are you, how are you communicating outcomes to your uh, international student audiences in terms of the messaging you're including. Here now we're talking about COVID stories. So next we'll be talking about some other things that are, are particularly important in this process. How, uh, what, how are you talking about safety? That's not just health and safety like COVID, but how you talk about safety on your college campus. Uh, different stories related to that. So uh, I want everybody to take away from this. Uh, not this is, and if you're looking for examples of how specific institutions are doing this, uh, there are several included in, links included in the article. There are some of these. Some of the some of the things that are in here are internal focused. That are uh, the university looking at themselves and how they did, and then sharing some of those results. We've got uh, at individual institutions, uh, graduate students talking about uh, how uh, their experiences were uh, during the pandemic. Uh, we have uh, University of California has an entire site to dedicated to stories of resilience during the pandemic. Perfect. Absolutely perfect. That is an example for everybody in terms of what you can do. Uh, that has interviews with two students about their experiences. Uh, you have uh, another one, uh, another one of the pathway providers, Shorelight, uh, gathered international students from three of its campus partners to discuss how they navigated the various challenges. You had one student, some students that began their studies remotely uh, because they had decided to leave at the beginning of the pandemic from their home countries. While at Florida International, you had international students that were living on campus while courses were done online and what did the campus do for them during that period. So those are the kind of stories that pull you in that say, oh, wow, that's, that's kind of, that was us. Why don't we do something like that? So 
what in the end, what it's doing by uh, having your students tell the story, it's conveying institutional commitment. It's showing that your school really cares about the, your students. That is, is, is putting uh, in place the kind of data uh, that is updated regularly that students can and should go to, uh, but it's also the resources uh, that future students will want to know, hey, this, this campus really cares uh, and here's what they've done. And they can share that with their parents if, they don't, if they're not seeing it first. So a lot of great content um, uh, examples of that. One in particular I will share with you, uh, and if you um, if you like a good cry, uh, I want you to watch this video from uh, one of a, one, a Syracuse student from Chengdu uh, who wrote a song right at the beginning of the pandemic when China was getting all the blame for uh, with the previous administration by uh, for the pandemic. Uh, she wrote a song, "Embrace You." It's in Chinese, but uh, in Mandarin, but you, you, it's the video that goes along with that is her, uh, you'll see the subtitles, but it's her on campus uh, wearing a mask out, out on campus at the beginning of the pandemic, offering hugs to people. Uh, and it's a, it's a tearjerker. Yeah, see if you can get through that without crying. But anyway, this is, these are the kinds of things that can have real resonance with your future student audiences and their parents to know that your campus cares, your campus stepped up, your campus did something to make the lives of your, your current students better during a very trying time. Um, where we see all these stories, uh, almost a new one every day comes out from different countries and different institutions in the U.S. where mental, uh, the, the challenges with mental health uh, crisis going on on campus because of the impact of the pandemic and the isolation that so many students have had. You see that in, in elementary schools and high schools and middle schools that have gone, uh, gone online for the majority of last year, particularly those students in low-income neighborhoods that don't have reliable Wi-Fi that had to go to McDonald's to do their classes to do their classwork because they don't have it at home. This is the thing that, these are the kinds of stories that show if your institution is stepping up and making a difference in your students' lives, the value of that is gonna be, gonna be far reaching beyond just the good that you did for those students. So the last topic of the day, uh, continuing on from last week's big news, uh, big stories that we covered about all the STEM majors that have been added in uh, by DHS to, uh, to the list of, um, academic programs that students can get um, three years of work permission per degree level, bachelor's, master's, and doctorate. Uh, really, uh, it is a key distinguisher in U.S. international higher education promotion and can and should be leveraged at every turn. So I'm sure, I hope you know, and I hope you distinguish in some way when your recruitment materials on your website, uh, which of your academic programs are STEM eligible. And uh, I just did a feasibility study with a small liberal arts college that uh, they're just trying to think about how they can do international. And one of the things I, I, I asked them to generate, get their, from the registrar, get their list of their SIP codes that they know are STEM eligible. And then that takes prominence in how they promote their programs to international students. And there are specific mail emails that can and should be devised in the Comflow that highlight those benefits because that is a distinguishing factor that puts us, uh, gives the U.S. a leg up over the competition. Other, other uh, countries have two-year work permission now or uh, 12 months, 18 months here, uh, two years there. We have potentially three years of work permission for three degrees. So a student that comes here, does a bachelor's degree, does three years of work, can then do a master's degree, do three more years of work, can do a PhD and do three more years of work, 
and all on an F1 student visa. And that's a value add that you can present that as a proposition. No, most students won't do nearly all of that, but they can know that it is a potential reality for them, that depending on their program, if they choose a STEM program, that this is something that they can look forward to and they can start picturing in their mind, wow, I can work for three years after I finish my bachelor's degree. And hopefully that company likes me. They want to hire me on more long, longer term and I get more experience. Maybe that's what uh, the student wants. Maybe it isn't. But at least they know it's an option. And that's something that drives so much interest around the world for university study outside of home country. It's post-study work. Even China's gotten in on this. They, I think they grant five-year visas for those that graduate with master's or doctoral level uh, STEM programs. That they, They're going to give that kind of level of work permission for five years uh, in China for, for that kind of a program. But... China's got its own issues th these days. Won't go into that. But uh, some of the articles I'm sharing today, one is the F Forbes article that uh, from Stuart Anderson, who's uh, regularly on, um, on the pro-immigration side and pro-H1B and pro-OPT. So he talks about what those changes are uh, and directs to the list of what those, the definition of what those majors are, who, of the new ones that were added, the 22 new programs. But uh, if you're, if you're, if you're trying to dial down to uh, the actual full list, not just the new 22, but the full list. If your registrar doesn't have it, there is a full list of the majors available through the DHS sites for study in the States. Uh, you can find the STEM OPT hub, you can find that list, uh, and it's in the Federal Register, so it's kind of not a very user-friendly one, but you can you can get, that, get to that list fairly easily. Uh, Pi News also has uh, a, a, an article this past week on how the international ed sector has reacted to uh, Biden-Harris's STEM initiatives. Uh, this, um, so it's certainly no surprise that uh, us, we in higher ed, our international higher ed, are really excited about some of these options that uh, will expand the range of uh, majors that can be attractive to international students from around the world. And another piece is uh, from uh, talking some real specifics about the impact of uh, these majors can have. Uh, you look at data science, one of the new programs that was added to the list. Uh, data science graduates in the United States on, uh, on, on STEM OPT can now earn 100000 Per year, starting out six-figure salaries, and these are for uh, mostly in the banking industry. Uh, J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, Citibank, Wells Fargo are the ones uh, around the country. Some in California, some in uh, New, a number of them in New York, Charlotte, and New Jersey. So you have all of these players uh, that have. Some of it's quant analysis, quant analytics, the job titles here, AI developer, AI machine learning associate, AI research senior associate, uh, AVP of quant finance, finance analyst, so uh, associate software engineer. Uh, these are the kinds of majors that are high demand and high and have high salaries to start. Some of these are high salaries because of their locations in New York and California, but some of them are Charlotte, North Carolina. Can you make 105,000 uh, as a quant finance analyst? So really some, some concrete examples of what you can do. And when you as an institution can tie your graduates to some of these kinds of jobs, this is the ideal, when we talked about um, in our first article for this uh, CPR series for IDP Connect, I talked about outcomes. And I said, how great would it be if you can have all the institute, all the 
companies that your, your graduates have worked for and their position titles and be able to capture that and then use that for on the front end of the process and talk about how, how, what the outcomes are for your international graduates. So this is, this is the kind of data that you, your prospective students can and should see, particularly if you have a data science major, for example. The final bit is talking, the question that I asked about STEM majors uh, in this third question, how are STEM OPT majors driving innovation? Uh, you see a lot of this happening in the business field. And why is that important? And maybe the influence that the business, uh, the business community, community has uh, with DHS in terms of their uh, H-1B visas, and because uh, uh, obviously DHS regulates that uh, in some, some way, shape, or form, it's also tied to OPT. And why do business, business, the business community wants students to have more work opportunity because it gives them an extra two years to, to vet, a, vet a potential H-1B hire uh, as opposed to just one that they get for non-STEM majors. So business schools, and this is where the innovation piece comes in, these uh, are, are oftentimes some of the early adopters of trying to configure their curriculum to allow for STEM majors. And there's a, an interesting uh, piece from Poets and Quants, which is primarily a student-facing uh, publication that uh, talks primarily about top business schools and uh, that type of thing. But they have a list on their site of uh, all the major STEM programs at U.S. business schools. So when we talk about what those business programs are, we're talking about uh, the programs in uh, quantitative finance. Uh, we're talking about uh, the programs in MIS. Uh, we're talking about economics and data analytics. Uh, we're talking about cybersecurity. Uh, we're talking about these kind of majors that are differenti differentiators uh, in terms of what will set apart some business schools over others. The data from this article suggests that about just over half of all business schools either have already STEM business majors within their, or structures within their MBA program or offerings within their MBA program and or are considering it, uh, considering adding those or working towards adding those. There are still roughly half of all business programs are not bothering going down that road. And those are the old, potentially some of the older stodgier ones that don't, uh, don't see the need or uh, don't, want, don't feel the need to distinguish them. But when you look at some of the, these top schools here, Stanford, uh, their business school. The entire full-time MBA program is now STEM eligible. Uh, they are, uh, they have uh, MS, MS degrees. Uh, they're Chicago's Booth School of Business, entire full-time MBA, STEM. Uh, UPenn, majors in full-time MBA, actuarial science, business analytics, business economic and public policy, business, business energy, environment and sustainability, operations, information and decisions, and statistics and quantitative finance. So these are the kinds of academic programs that are now STEM eligible that give business graduates an opportunity for three years of work before they have to worry about an H-1B. So this is gold for universities in, in terms of how you position yourselves in a globally competitive market for international student attention. When you can say to a business school graduate, if you come in and you do one of these business majors or business programs, you're going to have not one year, but three years of work permission, whereas a little less than a year or two ago, you wouldn't have been able to get more than one. 
So this without having, and that you're on a clock almost immediately when you start a job to try and impress, to get uh, them to potentially sponsor you for an H-1B. But this now gives businesses three years to, to, to really get to know you before they have to commit uh, the, the three or $4,000 that they need to sponsor you for that H-1B. So there's some really fantastic data in here and some great examples that you should share with your business college if, they, if they're not already moving in this direction to look at some ways that they can add on to the, the enhance the quality of their offerings to prospective students from overseas. So hopefully that makes a difference to you today. Hopefully you found some uh, in, information here that will uh, make a difference in your communication planning, in your uh, just the way you approach uh, your work, uh, whether it's social media, whether it's COVID stories or STEM OPT. All of these things can be really valuable tools if used well in, your, in how you communicate with your prospective audiences. So until next time, have a great week, and we'll check in with you on the 9th. Cheers.